welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast through High Point Church. And we have Stanford Gibson on, and who's a member of the uh, UC Davis College Life podcast. And we have with us um, Dr. Oh. Joshua Swamidas, who wrote the book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, which postulates a, um, a relatively recent genealogical ancestor of a actual Adam and Eve, and also seeks to put that together with fairly mainstream um, scientific uh, theories of evolution. And so we're going to talk today about um, the, the theory in this book, the hypothesis, how it functions, what it means, and try to um, allow our listeners to have a sense of what's going on. So we're going we're to split the podcast kind of in two halves. One is try to let um, uh, Dr. Swamidas just like tell us what he wrote. For those of you who haven't read the book yet, um, he'll probably leave a little bit of spoilers out there so to encourage you to purchase and read it. Um, and then the second half of the podcast, we will do what scientists do with theories is try to falsify them. I'll ask relatively antagonistic questions and so will Stan. And um, we'll try to um, like ask him the harder questions and give him a chance to answer those. Before we do that, um, uh, Dr. Swamidas, who we will be calling Joshua through this podcast, um, you want to give like a little background uh, for, of yourself so people know a little bit about you, the author? Yeah, so... Uh, really relevant to this is that I'm a scientist. I'm not. I'm not a polemicist. I'm not. I'm, I'm not working for some organization of origins. I, I'm, I'm a professor. I do scientific mm-hmm. work. I'm NIH funded at the University of California. Sorry, not, that's where I studied. I'm at Washington University in St. Louis, and I do uh, work in computational biology, applying artificial intelligence to solve problems uh, in at the intersection of medicine, chemistry, and biology. And so, I'm not really coming to this. Uh, to, you know, with my job on the line, staking behind some sort of creationist position. I'm, I'm just trying to do good science that really makes sense of questions that are arising in public and trying to serve the common good. That That's really who I am and the real motivations behind this book. Yeah. Um, I think you say in the book that you grew up in a relatively conservative Christian household, theologically speaking, where people would have believed in a historical Adam and Eve and a, a rel- would they ever believed in a relatively young earth as well and that kind of thing? Yeah. Most of my family members uh, were and are young earth creationists. I'm not, I, I'm a Christian, but I see a lot of legitimacy in evolutionary science. So I, I really affirm that. So I call myself a Christian that affirms evolutionary science and that that's been um, a point of contention, even, you know, in, in areas as uh, important to me as my close family. Uh, I think it's been a little bit hard and confusing for some of them to understand. Mm -hmm. And I think as they've understood, uh, some of them have understood that it's not that I respect scripture less. That's been really helpful. Uh, The issue is just that I've seen things in science. And when I look at scripture, I don't think it rules those things out. So I'm just in this place where I could be in conflict. Maybe I was in conflict when I was a kid uh, about some of the stuff, but I just don't see the conflict anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um, you wrote a book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, as all good book interviews should start. What's the book about? Well, it's it's a many-layered book. It's about many things. <laughs> so um, on the simple level, it's about Adam and Eve um, and really engaging this large conversation. It's been going on for 150 years since Darwin uh, first introduced evolution. The debate began about human evolution. That's really where the fight was because it really seemed like that's where the conflict was. And it traces through the Dover trial and it ends up becoming part of the subconscious of the, uh, well, I mean, sorry, the Scopes trial starts to become part of the subconscious of the Dover trial and all these other things. And that's just been the place where the people have felt that's where the conflict is. It's not really about the age of the earth. It's not really about evolution of the animal kingdom. It's really about us and who we are mm-hmm. and where we came from. That's right. So that, that's, that's what this book is about. It's really showing that um, 150 years ago, um, when people were just certain there was conflict, it turns out that maybe they just didn't understand something about the science that we do now. And there yeah. isn't that much conflict. So the heart of the argument in your book is that you make a distinction between Adam and Eve being our genetic ancestors, meaning that all of our genetics came originally from them, that there, that all of humanity comes, comes from a single couple to the, to the idea of them being our genealogical ancestor, meaning that all of us can trace our genealogies back to Adam and Eve, but that they didn't necessarily, they didn't, they didn't actually supply all the gen- genetic material for humans as we have them now. So you're getting to this distinction between genetics and genealogy. So uh, historically, many traditions in the church have held that we all descend from Adam and Eve. And people have been convinced that, you know, if 
what we've been learning from evolutionary science, and particularly genetics, is true. If that's true, then Adam and Eve are not ancestors of us all. That's been the general idea. Now, what's happening there? It turns out that there's just an equivocation, at times intentional, maybe at times not, who knows, uh, about why this became so pervasive. But the way how we're using the term ancestry in theology and scripture is very different than how it's being used in science. Mm -hmm. uh, when scriptures teaches, when theology teaches, it's not talking about DNA. DNA is something that was just discovered, you know, about 100 years ago. Right. And so even, you know, 150 years ago, when people talked about ancestry, they could have been talking about a lot of things, but they weren't talking about DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and... The thing is, the strange, weird thing about science is that when we talk about ancestry, almost all the time, that's what we mean. We mean DNA. <laughs> and so you have this situation where it's almost like uh, people from two different languages or cultures coming down and, and having a word with the exact same utterance, the exact same sound, where there's some overlap in terminology or meaning, but it really is different things. And most people didn't know this. And it turns out that genealogical ancestry is very different than genetic ancestry. And if genealogical ancestry is most important, the story really changes. It turns out that Adam and Eve, if they existed at any point really in, in history, even if they were very recent, as recent as just 6,000 years ago, our best science tells us that they would likely be ancestors of everyone, which turns out to be exactly the opposite of the question that we get from from genetics, which says that, you know, it would be hundreds of thousands of years ago in the past that uh, Adam and Eve would have to be if they were our universal genetic ancestors. Mm -hmm. And so and that, that really changes things. So before I'm an antagonist, I really want to be a booster. Like I really, I really, I really love this book and think it's really valuable. And I think that there's an important theological question here or like a hermeneutic question. And that is, you know, not, what are we going to read when we read ancestry but what would the author have meant like th this is this is one of the fundamental rules of biblical interpretation not what's the kind of modern gloss that we put on a word when we read it but what are what's the possible range of reference that the original author could have used when they used that word yeah and it's not about intelligence because they were very intelligent people yeah, i mean they, oh, were, they were just as smart as we are it's more about um, the cultural milieu yeah and you know, if you'd never heard of anime because you've just been kind of locked into American culture and, and been living in a hole somewhere, you can't make reference to anime. That's right. That's right. It's not about intelligence. It's just about it's just not within, you know, your field of view. Um, mm -hmm. And it's the same sort of thing. You know, um, they lived at a different time than we did. They, they never referenced iPhones. They just never referenced it mm -hmm. uh, because they didn't know that iPhones existed. And frankly, they probably never conceived of it. <laughs> and that's okay, because that's not actually what's important to what Scripture is telling us. It's telling us really our sacred history. It's telling us the true story of how we came to be in the, in the way that's really relevant and important to the story of salvation. And as a Christian, I think it's a true story, too. And it's not that it's merely spiritual, that it does make references to physical reality as well. Yeah. And so it's it's a it's a it's a physical history about our past, but it's still not the whole story. There's other things that happen too. Yeah, yeah. I think to clear, I want to clarify for listeners because if they haven't read the book, they don't know the sketch yet of the outline of your hypothesis, which is that standard evolutionary theory is basically correct, which is life has evolved somewhere around two hundred thousand years ago. Um, hominids evolved to the point of something like Homo sapien in in, in a decently significantly sized population that population moved forward and spread throughout the earth somewhere around 6,000 years ago god instantiated something like a garden of eden and created two distinct human beings distinct from those genetic lines just like de novo and those two people adam and eve and their offspring went out into the world and there was interbreeding between these two lines of human beings they became one human race and by this point the Adam and Eve that were in that garden, though they weren't the first human hominids, they may have began something like what we call humanity or what we meant by it religiously. And at this point, if you trace things genealogically, all human beings um, find 
Eve as the mother of all the living and Adam as the father. One, but they they would be one of the fathers of all the living and one of the mothers of all the living, right? But truly, ancestors like genealogical ancestors of us all. Yeah, I, I would probably phrase some parts of that a little bit differently, but I think that's the general idea. It's the idea of people outside the garden. You know, even as a young earth creationist, I wondered about people outside the garden. Um, and if you read Genesis, you know, I was just uh, on a podcast with Michael Heiser, who wrote The Unseen Realm and a couple other really excellent books on the Old Testament. And we were going back and forth about this and having a lot of fun with it. And it, it, when you read Genesis, it, it really does seem to teach that Adam and Eve's lineage wasn't pure. Right. And, and you know, if that's true, then, yeah, we all descend yeah. from Adam and Eve. The people to whom Scripture's referring is Adam and Eve and their descendants. That's like a very ancient definition of human, uh, which I think is probably the definition of human that they had in view. But that wasn't to mean that it was this hermetically sealed lineage. In fact, there was a lot of exchange happening. At times, it might have been good. At times, it might have been bad. But the fact of the matter was, is that in the end of the day, uh, there's just an, so much mixing that, you know, we're not genetically distinct from any of the people outside. Yeah, I think so. Just I want to clarify this for listeners that don't have any. There's a lot of listeners that don't have background in this. So, mm -hmm. f for example, um, after Cain kills Abel, right? Um God sends Cain away mm -hmm. and um, Cain says, this is in Genesis 4, 13 following. Cain says, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me out from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Right. And so, and then God says, no, I'm going to put a mark on Cain so that that won't happen. So like, it seems like, so, so there's no point in these early chapters of Genesis where it explicitly says, Hey, there was this other nation of people yet. It, like there, there isn't discussions of nations yet, but there's this assumption that if you're driving Cain away from this people, he's a part of right now, he's out going out from the presence, whatever that means. Right. He's when he goes out, he's going to run into people. Oh, who are these people? Where have they come from? Right. Uh, right. Cain and Abel are early offspring of Adam and Eve. We're supposed to assume. Right. So what's going on? And so even though the text doesn't explicitly say, hey, there were these nations that already existed, it doesn't give us a theology or a biology of that. There's a number of passages where you're like, you know, to really make this make sense, it really seems like we should be assuming that there are other human people in the world. Yeah. Right? I mean, and that's the argument you're too, making, right? Yeah. I, I would add a couple things about that. One is that, you know, it's not just, it is, that is one passage. That's not the only passage. I mean, Honestly, I read the Table of Nations in Genesis 10 and 11 as a kid. I'm an Indian, and I'm an Indian immigrant, and I kind of wondered to wanted to see, okay, so how did God talk about, like, how did India get populated, right? Mm -hmm. India is not on that list. And you might say, oh, it wasn't populated yet. But we know, actually, that, yeah. that, that there was communication between Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley. And this valley civilization was there yeah. and they were having a trade with them, but yet they don't, they don't actually claim in Genesis that, Oh, all those Indians over in the Indus Valley, they all descend from Adam and Eve. They don't, they don't say that. So when they talk about the earth, they mean like a more narrow area. Um, of course, new Testament gives us a broader view and we can talk about that in a moment. Mm -hmm. And I know what some of the objections are. now some people are going to say, well, Hey, you don't have to read, the story of Cain and Abel that way. Maybe they were, the scripture doesn't say it for some odd reason. Um, we can just reorder things about Adam and Eve having other children. Um, uh, I don't know why you're allowed to reorder it there, but not Genesis 1, mm -hmm. but let that be. <laughs> and, um, and let's just say there was just a lot of people going on, and this is like centuries later. Okay, so I can grant that uh, there... Uh, you can do some backflips and come to a, a view where maybe it sort of kind of works. Okay. But that's okay. I'm not trying to say that you're forced into the view that there were people outside. I'm just saying that scripture makes space for it and the tradition makes space for it. And people, in fact, people have been wondering about Cain's wife for thousands of years. It's not like this is something yeah. new. That's just part Every of the Genesis tradition. Every kid asks that. Like if yeah. they grew up in like a Christian household, they're like, so where did King get a wife? And you're like, <laughs> That's um, right. well, there's two options. Yes. One is a sister. <laughs> the other is. And you know, here I would, I would step out from what would be considered good hermeneutics uh, to make a theological point. Uh, you know, maybe that's providential. You know, maybe uh, they didn't know all the questions we would have in the future, but God 
had them write it down in a way that provoked these questions for thousands of years to prepare us for this moment, you know, and wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be beautiful? So I, it just seems though, I don't think scripture teaches evolution and in the same way, it doesn't teach DNA. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's just so much in Genesis that is so deeply concordant and consistent with the natural history we've learned from evolutionary science that I'm often just kind of a bit, you know, dumbstruck by that. Yeah. All right. So like, what else do we say positively, Stan? I know you've got some stuff that positive, like I, 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 I'm a high, my personality is very high in disagreeability. So normally I'm like, yes, 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 yes. All these good things. And then I'm like, okay, so what's wrong with this? That's just how my personality works. So I got lots of questions. Um, but I do think that like, I hadn't read another book like this. I remember reading, um, uh, Joshua, I remember reading your article in the Henry center. There was like a, there was like a series of articles and discussions there. That was the first time I ever read anything by you knew you existed. And I read that first article and it seemed at that point you were still postulating two universal ancestors that had never met, but that you could like trace us back. Wow. I, I may have read that wrong, but it seemed like that's what some people are trying to work out. And then with this book, I, I was like, oh, so no. So Adam and Eve are a couple that met each other. They knew each other. They had children. They interbred with the rest of human, the human hominid population. And at this point, they are that. So like, I think I understand that now. So Stan, what else, like, what else can we like affirm try to help people understand, see the well, positives or the benefits of this. Well, let me just emphasize a couple things here. First sure. of all, I put that forward as a proposal, but uh, really it's very flexible. It's not insisting on anything. I don't know the details because I'm on an exegete and science right. doesn't really tell us. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of flexibility here that where, you know, I, I just don't think scripture tells us there's a lot that's possible. So this is really a book about what's possible. And what we can find yeah. out is according to our best science, you know, if Adam and Eve were recent, it's likely, uh, even if they were in the Middle East, it's very likely they'd be ancestors of all of us. You know, it, this doesn't require any fine tuning and about where we place them or about who they are. It's just most likely that, you know, that wherever you place them on the globe, uh, 6,000 yeah. years or later, by 81, by the time that of Jesus's ascension, uh, you know, by the time, you know, the star appears over Bethlehem, by that point, everyone across the entire globe descends genealogically from Adam and Eve. And if that sounds confusing, I just you know, emphasize that we probably wouldn't get DNA from all. We all would not all get DNA from them, but we'd be all genealogical ancestors of them. And 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 a key part of the book is really, you know, pulling out the difference between genetic and genealogical ancestry and what that is. But of course they could be farther more, far more ancient. They could be 10,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, a hundred thousand years ago, or going back as far back as Bill Craig wants to put him or a lot of Catholics around 700,000 years ago. You know, all of that is possible from a scientific point of view. There's, we just don't have any evidence to rule it out. And yeah, so, and w- wouldn't you say that a placement in Mesopotamia is actually a fairly favorable one? relative to being an ancestor of everyone as opposed to like Madagascar or Papua New Guinea. Right. Yeah. So, well, it turns out that when you're talking about the spread of humans and civilization in particular, it really, uh, you know, civilization really begins like the first cities are in middle East and then there's a population boom that spreads across the entire world from there. Um, there's definitely independent origins in some ways to civilizations, but there's also strong connections and interchange across them. Mm-hmm. And it really spreads across the globe, including to, to uh, the Americas. And so it just, it just turns out that that would be a place where, you know, it's not like they were in Hawaii, uh, mm-hmm. you know, on a deserted Island that no one ever knew about. And mm-hmm. there's no exchange isolated there. Um mm-hmm. That's not what it was. They were really in the center of everything, if that's really what what happened. Yeah. So, so just okay. Let me just say one more clarifying thing, Stan. Then, then I'll give you a whole line of questions. So, this is how I understand this, scientifically speaking. Right now, this is a postulated hypothesis. Like, if you think about the math and how genetics works, you could postulate an Adam and Eve, and this would work. At this point, you don't have a like, like a scientific proof or something that we could like that we could falsify it. Like right now it's an unfalsifiable hypothesis, but it's a hypothesis that works, right? Well, I think that's not how I would put it. Look, I mean, we don't have any scientific evidence that Obama, Obama exists or that Trump exists. (laughs) Like I, I don't have any scientific evidence that you exist. I just have you on a video. I mean, history. I mean, I don't have any scientific evidence per se that, you know, the American revolution exists. There's things in it that happen in history 
that, you know, even if I got, you know, Abraham Lincoln's DNA, I don't have scientific evidence in the way we normally think about it, that it's Abraham Lincoln. There's a point where it interfaces with history. We have to start reading historical documents and make sense of it, right? Yeah. But in terms of like understanding the hypothesis, in terms of like, how would we create an experiment so we could tell whether or not this happened or didn't happen? We're not, we're like, we're not there. Like at that right now, it's just like, hey, this could happen and it could happen. So like in terms of mathematics and population distributions, those kinds of areas of falsifiability, you've made the argument, look, this could happen. You can't falsify it this way. So the, so we, we could, like all scientific theories, you could try to create further experiments by which yeah. you could sort of like try to make a stronger arguments that in, in fact happened, right? Yeah. So here's the thing. In the end, when it comes to understanding what happened in real reality, there's just limits to what science can tell you. What we do is we form a hypothesis and then we try and falsify it. Right. Mm-hmm. And at times we can't falsify it, and that's what we're left with. And at times there's many hypotheses that we have mm. that we can't falsify. Right. And so there's just from a scientific point of view, we just say we don't know. It might be one of these or maybe something else that we didn't think of. And in this case, uh, you know, one of the big tests that came out was looking at ancient DNA. So one thing that could have falsified this was uh, is the idea Well, if we just looked at DNA and found that humans were just far more geographically locked in uh, and that there wasn't much interbreeding at all in the past, that that would really undermine this idea. I mean, it would push it back. We'd have to think a bit about how far it would push it back, maybe like to 20,000 years in the past or maybe 50,000 or so. Um, And, you know, maybe we would have identified some other types of humans somewhere. Like maybe we find like a pocket of fully human Neanderthals in a, in a, in a, in a, in an Island somewhere, you know, those are the sorts of things where, you know, that would really have produced some, some really troubling evidence to this idea. But what happened over the last 10 years is that people actually did look at this sort of data and to see, you know, what actually is the population's genetic population structure of the entire, you know, world population. And we find out, that wherever we look, humans are just far more mixed than we That's really right. had conceived of in the past. There was it was just far more long range travel, uh, things that were definitely not documented in history. And if you can see it in genetics, that means that there's a whole bunch more that's not happening, and that that was happening that we can't actually see in genetics. Mm-hmm. And so that that really seems to just make the idea far more plausible and sensible. Now you'll never get to the point of 100% certainty either way. Um, and I do a lot to work that out, but that isn't a weakness really. And so I'm, I'm just uh, cautious about the term unfalsifiable because some people don't really understand how science works on this. Right. right kind of right. explaining some of this a little more. Right. Asking for evidence that can't exist is not a problem with a theory. Exactly. Right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the issue. And it just turns out that, you know, uh, we get, we see DNA because we can actually, you know, tangibly take a look at it and hold it and sequence it. Genealogical ancestry is not one of those things like that. That doesn't mean it's yeah. not real. Mm-hmm. It's right. part of real things that happen. It's like a chain of you know physical reproduction over time. It's real things that happen, but it doesn't always leave evidence. Right. It's an incomplete documentation. Absolutely. All right, all right, Stan. Go ahead. He's your he's your witness. So I I read this book with a number of people who are very intelligent, but don't have science background. And so I think the distinction between genetic ancestry and genealogical ancestry that we're talking about pretty loose, pretty freely here because we've all read the book um, is worth digging into a little bit because it's profound, but it's it's difficult to get your mind around if, if you're not in population, if you haven't taken a population genetics class, like two of us have. Um, and uh, the, 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 issue that I, I the, the illustration that I found helpful is that you know genetic ancestry is like a funnel that gets narrower backwards in time. And so you know you would ha- the our genetic ancestor would have to be you take this funnel it gets narrower backwards in time and it would be one person right and we talk about the mitochondrial Eve and Adam and if those could possibly be the same per- place and probably well it's not. really one person for every part of our genome right that, so well that's think- true too right right it's that absolutely um, the the amazing thing about genealogical math 
that I think you have excellent figures in your book that make this really clear, which don't play on a podcast, but that's like a funnel that gets bigger back in time. And so if you think about like, if your grandma worked out your family tree, that, that every, every, that's a, that's an end, end to the two problem, right? Like every generation you go backwards, there are more people you're related to. And so if you just think about everyone building that tree backwards, that the way the math works out that 6,000 years ago, we're all related to everyone, including potentially a specially created ensouled hominid that would be somewhere in Mesopotamia. And therefore, as the scriptures would have set, talked about ancestry, they are the ancestors of us all in the scripture's own um, parlance. Is it, would, that, would that be a fair way of making the argument? Yeah. And of course, there is a statement being made about theology and scripture there too, right? But yeah, that's the idea. It's the idea that if Adam and Eve were real, and then we all descend from them. And that it's okay, scripturally and theologically, if there were these fully human thinking, breathing people outside that weren't the humans of which scripture was talking about. And so I think what this, this unlocked some things for some folks, you know, some, some really educated folks um, in my circles who have, you know, even into middle age are feeling a lot of anxiety about the conflict between the scriptures and the scientific narrative, which, you know, like you, I kind of came to peace with that in an ecology class many years ago. Um, but, you know, for me, I fully affirm the evolutionary narrative and I fully affirm the the authority of the scriptures. But for that always put a, a theological atom, like in a, that'll always put an actual Adam and Eve probably 200,000 years ago for me. And I'm not alone. I feel like most of the people in, in that world, which is, which would be, you know, the biologos folks, the, the, the evolutionary, the, the folks that, that in that world um, tended to agree to the point that they said that you really can't affirm a historical Adam within 6,000 years. And I think that they've changed their policy on that based on this book. It's a little complicated with evolutionary creationists and biologists. To be clear, I don't consider myself an evolutionary creationist. I think it's right. a little bit uh, an, uh, too narrow of a theological approach. And I'd say they favor a non-historical atom. Most of them take a view that, uh, I mean, though some of them, I mean, there's some outliers. I think the vast majority take the view that Adam and Eve are just mythical. Um, they... Have, they really, for the last 10 years, you know, emphasized the conflict between genetics and Adam and Eve. And uh, it's been a hard path for them. Um, recently, they've, though they've known for a while, recently they have been a little more public about the fact that they, that they had that wrong. Um, there's still a lot to untangle there. And uh, it's still pretty clear that it's not really a favorable position. <laughs> they don't yeah. like it for theological reasons because they they really prefer a more uh, you know uh, they just prefer a different approach mm -hmm. and that's okay we can disagree about that um, but my 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 concern is just that you know whatever you personally think about Adam and Eve even if you're an atheist scientist as many atheist scientists working in this as a peaceful science would say see we should still be still be you know upfront and forthright and clear and honest with people with questions and say even if I disagree with you. Let's just be clear. There's no evidence against that, and there's no reason why that should put you in conflict with science. And that that, that type of flexibility really serves the common good, and it serves science, and it serves society. So that's really what I've really been encouraging them to do. And they're slowly, slowly adjusting. I hope they get there at some point. But I want to put a really fine point on this because I think if you take one thing away from this podcast, um, this podcast is pretty nerdy um, in the scientific and the theological sense. So if like just to break it down, if you were to take one thing away from this podcast, you don't have two options. You it isn't a either a mythological Adam and Eve or they were two hundred to seven thousand years ago. There is a scientifically credible way to say that. In the parlance of scripture, Adam and Eve were our actual ancestors 
and actually lived in Mesopotamia 6,000 years ago that doesn't fundamentally conflict with the scriptures or the evolutionary narrative. That space has opened. If that was the space that you always thought should, and this is what several of my friends who have had, who found a lot of peace in this book said, I feel like that's the space, that's the credible space for them really to, uh, these two stories to really come together. I always felt comfortable with a 200,000 year old Adam and Eve and a mythological Adam and Eve. I, I really felt like that's where it should have been. That that scientific and theological space has now opened because of this hypothesis of the, the of the genealogical Adam and Eve. Yeah, I think that that's that's the right way to put it. I mean, there's just a lot of space that's opened up, and it's not constraining space. That's just like one bracket on a very large range of stuff. Uh, it turns out, like I mean, I mentioned Bill Craig uh, and you know Catholic points of view, but there's also a large. I mean, there's also reasons to believe. Um, there's just a large range of views now that are. Or just not really, you know, in necessary conflict with the evidence, and and that, that that's good news. I mean, it just means that that we kind of have a, an abundance of uh, there's an abundance of possibilities. You know, when people really press me, when it gets down to it, I'm an agnostic on Adam and Eve because I that's just right. see so many ways it fits together that um, I, I have a hard time choosing. I can see a lot of um, legitimacy in multiple points of view. Not that all of them are correct. But maybe all of them are correct in some way. And the, and the puzzle, the fun of it now is to figure out, well, in what ways are they correct? And I think the way we're going to figure that out isn't by uh, isolating one another and just trying to figure out what idiosyncratically makes most sense to each of us, but to have a conversation to kind of explore together. I think that's the opportunity we have now. And I think that's one of the things I found really helpful about your book. You know, when, when I talk about the uh, the interaction between the theological and the evolutionary origins narrative, I give students 12 options. I say, listen, there are 12 ways that you can organize these books. Uh, the thing that the thing I don't like about your book is now you've given me a 13th, and that's not as nice a number. Um, but but one of the things, as I read your book, I made a flowchart because you've actually provided five options for a you know inter. It, for making this work, making these data work. Um, usually we're either talking about metaphorical or historical Adam and Eve. But in your book, you you have four alternative hypotheses. It could be historical chosen from a population spiritually refurbished, historical chosen from a population physically refurbished, historical created from dust and rib, distinct from those outside the garden with interbreathing either intended or interbreathing possible, or created from dust and rib and the same as those outside the garden. Those are four scientifically and theologically robust alternatives for a 6,000-year-old Adam and Eve, which personally, I still think a 200,000-year-old Adam and Eve makes more sense fits the data better. But the, I think all of those are credible. So if you think the evidence of scripture and the evidence of science line up to one of those, I, the, the, it's just open to you. And I think that what's important is this is not a defeater. The, the, the idea of a historical Adam and Eve um, coming out of the mouth of Jesus, therefore, they, you know, if, if, if your hermeneutic suggests they need to be real people, it, there, there's no circumstance in which that is you know scientifically falsified yeah so i think a large part of, so this was a frustrating part i'm glad you liked it but this is a frustrating part of the book for a lot of people because i don't actually constrain everyone to say well this is what it was <laughs> right and come out with one answer i'm often enumerating possibilities i do the same thing with the image of god i can explain all the different ways you can think about the image of god i do the same thing with original sin and kind of explain, you know, these are the different ways people thought about the original sin. And here's some different ways how it could work with this. And um, and I'm okay with that because I don't have to, to narrow down the field artificially as a scientist. I mean, science doesn't tell you in the end, right? And so that, that's been confusing for people. And what you're getting at is there's many ways we can think about God's creation of Adam and Eve. Like maybe they were actually created from the dust of prior prior a prior species right and maybe god chose them out of that population and did something with them There's well i haven't it, but, or, but maybe he actually really literally reached down and got mud and formed them and breathed into them i mean science doesn't tell us either way and so we can look at that now and say well what does scripture tell us and what's really necessary for theology and i have a general theological principle that i never want my theology to be more precise than scripture itself and I also have a general scientific unless you're unless you're dealing with Arians. 
<laughs> Unless Augustine said something about it. Um, and, and then, uh, but the, uh, but I also have a general scientific principle is that I don't want my um, hypotheses to be more specific than the evidence available. And so what we have, I think, in the world of who was Adam and Eve, where were they, is we have a certain amount of things that scripture said, and we have a certain amount of things that the scientific evidence constrains. And in there, we have this delightful basket of options that if you really want to know, well, that's too bad. God didn't tell us. And the the scientific evidence doesn't lead us to you know rule these out. It just means that there are a lot of ways that this could be true. Stan, when you say you want your, your hypotheses to be more specific than the availability, you mean by hypotheses there, you mean theory, right? Like well, yeah. hypotheses, no, they have to, by definition. I didn't be, mean conclusions that's more than conclusions. Hypotheses. That's yeah. what I meant. Yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. Because our I guess, hypotheses are always more specific. Always more specific. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. But I guess but our conclusions are we don't want to go beyond the data, and so uh, th- that's why we look at multiple hypotheses. That's one of the reasons right. we do that. Because there's no way to make a hypothesis that's not more specific than the data. So we make a large number of them, and we can look at the variation of what's consistent. And that tells us what the, what the data really what confines us to. That's what I think, I think you mean, right, Stan? Yeah, that's what Stan that's means. He's got, he says his theory is that there's multiple working hypotheses. That's right. Right. That are all options relative to our data right now. And we need sh- we should be working through them rather than just picking one and being like, this is the conclusion. I think is what, what I, you're saying. What I mean is I don't want my basket of hypotheses, right? So I don't actually right. – I don't want to zero in on one hypothesis um, based on a, and I feel like this is the problem. You know, the, one of the problems with science is that it's done by fallen humans, and we become fans of a hypothesis, and then we we vest ourselves in it emotionally, and we can't stay open to, uh, you know, the the, ev- the 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 fact that the evidence hasn't like constrained that hypothesis that other ones are available so actually what i meant is exactly the opposite of what i said um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's amazing because that happens in theology too become fans of certain theories well no, it, it's 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 a place where the, i think there's been a you know science is a very uh strange way of thinking about things <laughs> right it's not it, you have to be trained into it i mean I, I don't know anyone who just knows it from, from the outset how to think scientifically um and you know it's just, this is just one of the weird things. I mean, the reason why we're so hypothesis focused is it's just a tool to help us overcome some of these biases. Right. And so before we, before we switch to, um, to Nick's, you know, Nick and I obviously shared a house. Um, we, uh, we, our, our antagonism is well-documented. So before we, uh, we switch to asking, um, you know, more falsifying questions, let me just, I just want to tell a story is that, you know, there's a, there's a gentleman, a very close friend of mine who has multiple graduate degrees, who has, you know, who has, we've had this conversation for many, many years, and he's always struggled with the fact of, yeah, but it just doesn't seem to work. The historical Adam and the evolutionary narrative, they just don't seem to work. And he's the one that turned us onto this book because he came to our reading group and he said, the, like, I found the answer I was looking for. And oh, so that's I, I didn't awesome. send me an email. I'd love to meet him. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to have him on this podcast, but the, uh, I just, I just want to say that if, and there's another thing that I teach students is that um, if, if there's a, if there's a defeater out there, if there's a problem that you run into that you can't seem to work through, do you know how many of those I had when I was 25 that I don't have now? Like there are answers out there and answers take time. And so you need to hold your doubts with some skepticism. Because answers come up, and sometimes answers come up from a new professor in you know 2018, right? So you, you that's have a to, great way of putting it. Have some yeah. skepticism towards your doubt. You have to hold uh, your doubts with a little bit of skepticism and be and be open for like a time release on the answer. Yeah, I think uh, the way to put it is that there's a. I'm not Lutheran, but I think the Lutherans have a good way of thinking about it when they talk about paradox, right? And we can. We can, I mean, before it all, all the pieces fell into place, there was a point where I came to recognize, well, there's some legitimacy over there to science. It may not be correct all the time. It may not be the whole story, but there's some legitimacy over there. And I certainly trust scripture and I know there's legitimacy here, um, but I don't know how they all fit together and I'm trying to fit it together and maybe I won't be able to. And if you look historically, this question of Adam and Eve, there's a large number of very thoughtful, faithful people that um, went to their graves not knowing the answer and just mm-hmm. wondering and just looking to future generations saying, well, maybe they'll figure it out. 
I think what's so interesting about this moment on Adam and Eve is I think we're hitting a point where actually, you know, a lot of people had legitimate reason to wonder and think there was conflict. But I think that, that we know now that that conflict was just an illusion. And that's exciting. Yeah, I think one of the things I think it's also helpful about this this idea that like there could there might be a number of hypotheses as you, as you explore these things together is that there's also a lot of different human temperaments and different ways that different people like think through things and relative to that is like what they find credible or find mm-hmm. plausible. And so, for example, in my church, I have uh, about maybe 35 to 40 percent of my church are like no kidding young earth creationists. Like they believe the earth is 6000 years old, period, full stop. Right. And then there's other people in my church that are members of BioLogos and are like I, we had a hematology professor in our church who actually was actually not didn't believe in evolution. <laughs> That's right. um, but like but another one of his best friends was a doctor who absolutely did and was part of BioLogos and so on. And so like I have all these people in my church. Right. And my main rule on this is I will not allow for intellectual bullying. Yeah. There will be no intellectual bullying, right? Um, and so, um, but what? But 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 both people tell me is this: is Nick, what matters is the youth ministry because if you tell these kids young Earth creationism is the answer, they're going to walk away from Jesus. And the young Earth creationists say, Nick, if you tell these kids that evolution is true and the Bible is true, they will see the conflict and they will walk away from Jesus. And my response has been, I've actually seen that happen both ways. Yeah, I have too. <laughs> because people. People reason through things differently and people have different temperaments and people make different assumptions. And, and actually, I kind of think that if there's like a number of these hypo- hypothetical hypothesis options and you say, look, like your talk, Stan, there's, I can think of at least 12 options by which this works. I don't actually know the answer. Here's, here's some constraints I think come from scripture. Here's some constraints I, I think actually come from what was pretty reliable scientific information that we've accumulated up to this point. Within these rails... I can think of a number of ways to put it together. My hope is that by doing, by approaching it that way, we like allow a wider swath of people and their temperaments or idiosyncrasies in the accidental way they come to different groups of knowledge to along the way, be able to find something that helps them believe. I think because that's, that's definitely a, the starting a pastor, point. That's a big passion of mine. Like as a pastor, my vocation isn't science. I mean, I should be scientifically um, respectful of, of other fields that is not my main field, but my main field is to shepherd human people in the, in the ministry of Christ. And so I want people to, to be able to stay in the faith and care about their intellectual development. So that's one of the things that. Well, so I think, I think what you're saying exactly makes sense as a starting point. I just think there's more that can happen. That's good. So um, what you're saying is absolutely true, true, but I think it's also helpful for young earth creationists to acknowledge that there are, um, that there's scripturally faithful ways of being a young earth creationist and there's scripturally unfaithful ways. And it's helpful for, uh, for people from the biologos, the evolutionary creationist world to realize that the same is true for them. Uh, and in the end, uh, one of the big questions that faces uh, young people in the church is why is there so much disagreement in the church on things that are important? Now, the way how most churches handle this is they try and de-emphasize the, the importance of origins. And that's, that's not terribly credible. <laughs> I mean, origins really feels important. And in fact, it is important. Um, and it's a place of conflict. So how do we deal with a place of conflict that's important? That's a big question. And I think the answer uh, is really important for students. Uh, and it's something that the pastors should be teaching. And I think many pastors do, but we can do a better job of it too, is that we have to have a way to understand why is it we disagree and how we find community across disagreements. So what is the answer as Christians? Well, as Christians, it's because we find our cornerstone not in Genesis. We find our cornerstone not in how we interpret it or the age of the earth or anything like that. We find our cornerstone in who Jesus is and that he, he rose from the dead. And so the fact of the matter is that, um, that if another Christian's going to be in heaven because they know Jesus, we better figure out how to get along with him now. And the part that Jesus seems to care about is our relationship with him. And now what we say about him, <laughs> you know, when he goes to Peter, he doesn't say, well, what do you believe about Genesis? He says, well, what do you believe about me? <laughs> what do you believe about Jesus? And, and if we come to that place of placing our confidence in who Jesus is and that he rose from the dead, then we can tolerate disagreement in these other places. And I think that starts to create flexibility. So then that diversity no longer becomes a threat to the faith, but can start to become a place of fun where we play together. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Or 
it, it, it makes sense to me. It doesn't make sense to everybody that I minister to. Yeah. But yes. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, like I'm, I'm up to my neck in this with um, disagreeing politically. Like, you know, 40 That's or right. 45 percent of my church is Democrats and about and maybe 45 or 40 percent are Republicans. Yeah, so this is the part where I think and, what's going on. You're saying it's hard. I think the, yeah. I think there's a, I think there's a spiritual diagnosis. And I'm going to say this directly because I don't know who the people are you're talking about specifically. I'm talking talking honestly about myself and what my journey was um because this is something i'm subject to as well so it's gonna be pretty direct but just give me a moment here i think what's going on is we encounter the living god in jesus we encounter him we come to follow him we realize something's real there but then we as fallen human beings even though we're redeemed we turn and we worship idols we place other things in that place that only jesus is meant to occupy we We place our trust in our in a particular understanding of Genesis, a particular political party. But the thing that we have to keep on reminding ourselves is, is that Jesus is greater than all these things. You know, I'm a scientist. I love science. I found my my work here. I found my life here. I found my profession. Um, I spend more time doing science than anything else, and I love it. And I've looked all over science, but I haven't found anything in science that compares with the beauty I found in Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is greater than science. And uh, it's because of that, I have the confidence to explore science and enjoy it and love it the way I do. It's because God made me this way. And I think that, um, I think that worshipful posture to recognize that Jesus is greater than all of our, our politics. He's greater than all of our understanding. He's greater than even our theology. He's even greater than scripture, frankly. Jesus is greater than all of that. Um, I think yeah, it makes he, it easier. Jesus does explicitly say he's greater. Well, I mean, he actually says to the Pharisees, you think you've memorized these scriptures. You think that in them you have life when you should have seen that they pointed to me. Yeah. And I think this is the part where I think Jesus kind of unsettles even our Christianese worldview. Right. <laughs> and he's, he's bigger than our worldviews. He's, he is a, he, uh, he's this imminent presence. He's there. And he's the one we worship, that person, that one that's, he's uncontrollable. He's wild and uh, he's not tamed. And I think that that's, uh, that's, as you, as you introduce students to that one, you know, things really change. One of the, one of the exciting things I've had an opportunity to do is actually spend a lot of time with homeschool young earth creationist kids. Their parents actually invite me to hang out with them. And the reason why is interesting. They say, well, you know, we disagree with evolution. But if they came to agree with evolution the way you do, that wouldn't be such of a problem. <laughs> and and we talk to them, and they they're younger creationists, but they're like, oh, but you're one of us. We trust you. And the reason why is because when I talk about Jesus this way, they're like, oh, that's the one I want to follow. And he's greater than my parents. He's greater than my church. He's greater than young earth creationism. He's greater than the Bible. He is good, and I want to follow him. And I think if students see that they will have a robust, strong faith. That's what defends the student's faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, th- I think that if you're listening to this, you should hear this in the context of, and still, Joshua felt like as a secondary passion, it's still really important to grapple with this and wrote a book about it. So like the fact right. that, so, so like young earth creationism is a view that you can study, you can defend, you can think about, you can learn about this view, like trying to grapple between these views. Um, the thing is, when that becomes a god, then that's bad, and yeah, we so, have to be really careful about in having having like discernible political views of like what policies will lead to human flourishing versus others. There's nothing wrong with that either, but there's a point where that becomes your distinguishing mark, your identifying characteristic, and in some sense, your god. And so like that, and I've I've seen that with I've seen that with all kinds of scientific views as well. That they this becomes like the fact that I affirm the scientific view makes me a good person. And makes me a person who's educated, and 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 I've and I've seen that with the younger creation, young, young Earth creationists too, where there's like a vehemence behind it that I think isn't fitting. But I, I can, but I also respect a passion for it, mm-hmm. just as I respect a passion for other things. People are trying to to use their God given ability, and they're trying because some of these people say it's not idolatry. I'm just trying to be faithful to God, and I'm trying to fight what isn't faithful to God. And the answer is yes, but within God's parameters of unity and love. And with Jesus and himself being the preeminence in it. And that should change how and why and the style and how you treat people and all those things. When those get out of whack, you're out of whack. True. Um, What you're saying is very true. I agree with you. I think um, it's helpful to have a couple of markers to try and discern personally when things become idolatry. I think one thing for me in this space 
which is a clear sign was the insecurity and the fear that it had when I was placing my confidence in other places. And it would express itself often in what things other people from external point of view would just call overconfidence, but it was because I was compensating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was insecure. So I would do things that were very, uh, you know, you know, overstating things. Right. Um, And, and, you know, that's not what God has for us. He's given us a perfect love that drives out all fear. He's given us a way to have a confident faith. Um, in these places and to be able to confidently uh, send our children out into the world to be able to confidently um, connect with Christians that disagree with us. That's, that's the world that he, he offers us. That's the, that's his kingdom. That's what's possible. And if you're not experiencing God's kingdom on this earth, then pray for it. (laughs) You know, you know, there's a point where I just had to leave for me, young earth creationism and ID and even old earth creations at times really became not really about those things. It really became about opposing evolution. Yeah, that was the idol I had. And at a certain point, I just had to lay down my anti-evolution idols and follow Jesus. I mean, and realize that he was greater and whether evolution is true or false, he was greater and that he was worth following. And I knew that not because evolution was false, but because he rose from the dead. And, um, you know, I'm sorry for getting a little bit on a soapbox here, but this is really honestly, you know, if I had, if I had a guess a few years ago, I wouldn't have been writing a book about Adam and Eve. I would have been writing a book about Jesus and science yeah. and talking about these sorts of things, because this is yeah. so much more important, frankly. Um, I kind of got sucked into the Adam and Eve thing, uh, almost against my will. Uh, but but in the end, it's really Jesus that matters. Mm-hmm. And um and if you tell that to your children, if that overshadows everything, it's not so much and also we'll find a way to fit that in. What it does is that's what enables us to then start engaging with origins in a sensible way. That's what enables us to understand points of view that we disagree with. Uh, that's what enables us to give freedom to people that we disagree with. That's what enables us to uh, change our points of view without going through major identity crisis. That's what, that's what, that's what makes this fun rather than uh, stressful. And we can then, you know, have conversations about why is it that a lot of Christians think that Adam and Eve should be more ancient? And why is it something should be more recent? Mm-hmm. And, and what it really gets to is something that's supposed to be beautiful in the church. It's supposed to be the place where we're considering together uh, this grand question about what it means to be human and who we are in light of that and who God is. And uh, we, could, we could engage that God grand conversation again if we want to, but I think it's going to be easier when we find our confidence in who Jesus is. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you like this episode, rate us, review us on your favorite podcast platform, and also share this episode with a friend. That is the best way that we have to reach new listeners. If you have an idea for a question that you want us to answer on the podcast or just a general podcast topic, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org and we'll do our best to fit it in. Also, if you'd like to find more episodes of the podcast, you can do so by going to highpointchurch.org slash podcast, or else we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, other apps like that. So until next time, thanks for joining us for this episode of Engage and Equip.